Good morning, good morning, friends. Oh, what a blessed gift it is to be with all of you. If you don't know me, once again, might have said this earlier, but for those who may have come late, you are sleeping, you are receiving the blessed gift of sleep. Uh, side note, I love sleep so much. Especially at this point in the semester, maybe some of y'all are feeling that, just that, oh, whenever you can just catch a little piece of sleep, it's just such a, a gift. I feel like the older I get, the more I want to sleep. Like I will leave a, like a fun, I don't, I don't care what it is, except for church. But I will leave any, almost anything fun just to go sleep in my own bed. I just love sleep. Well, hey, again, my name is Pastor Anthony. Great to meet you. If you don't know me, uh, I'm uh, the new young adult pastor here at Keene Church. And uh, I'm kind of in between places right now. I'm uh, up at Andrews finishing my MDiv, but uh, sometimes I get to come and hang out and like just kick it and like vibe with you guys. So that's fun. Well, uh, once a month. Super, super fun. Um, I'm in the middle of uh, end of the semester stuff, just like you guys. So final papers, final exams and projects are coming up. It's beginning to heat up for me. I'm feeling the pressure. Uh, so it's like being in the promised land here. It's just like a, a, a taste of, of manna in the wilderness uh, for me. So thank you. Uh, thank you for being a gift to my heart. Hey, we're going to dive right in. So here's my question for you. Have you seen these 24-hour challenges on YouTube? Have you guys seen these? where like someone will do these like wild things for like 24 hours. Uh, I, I want to list a couple. There was one uh, that I saw uh, where this girl decides to sing the same song for 24 hours. And it's just, doesn't that, <laughs> your face, <laughs> doesn't that just sound like torture? It sounds like, like an actual torture technique. And she, I'm watching this video and she's singing this song and it just becomes brutal to the point where she's just like dying inside having to sing the same song just over and over and over and over for 24 hours. I was shocked that she actually made it. And it's just terrible. She has like a sped up version that you can see. It's just, by the end, she's just like almost crying, like barely singing. Another one I saw where man decides to take a bath for 24 hours. <laughs> Which, it sounds kind of nice. If you're a bath person, how many of you are bath people? Do I raise of hands? Oh, there's like shockingly few bath people. How many of you are shower people? Everyone else better raise their hand. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, uh, if you're a bath person, maybe that sounds great, uh, but it starts off great. He's like enjoying himself. You know, he's having a fun time, you know, a little bubble bath. But then he encounters the first barrier, which is like he needs to go to the, to the restroom, number one. And he, so he just goes in the bath and then, and, then, and he's wearing like trunks, but and then he wear, and then he just like empties the bath. He, that's the second dilemma. Like, what does he do with this water? So he empties it and then he refills it and he's still in the bath. And then as it goes on, it just becomes increasingly, he's like, I'm so pruney to the point of like my whole body is a prune. And then as it gets to evening, he realizes he can't sleep because he's afraid he's going to slide under and like die, like drown. So then he can't sleep. So he's just like tossing and turning in this tub. By the end, he was also in torture. The final one I watched was uh, by Mr. Beast. Uh, he's like, you know, the biggest YouTuber ever. He's, a, he's the one who like goes up to people and like, man gives away free house. And let's see their reaction. Uh, he, does, he does one where he paints himself. It says, man uh, stands still for 24 hours. And he paints himself like silver, like a statue. And he goes to this park with his friends. And they, uh, they're all filming it right for YouTube. And he just stands still. And he can't even last for like a few minutes. He's like, after a few minutes, he's like, I'm done. Like, I can't make it. It's too, it's, it's too, it's too terrible. Too terrible. Well, these 24-hour challenges, sometimes I get sucked into the rabbit hole. I don't know if any of you are like me. You're like, it's late at night. You're on YouTube, and soon you're just watching, like, man pops pimple on banana. And you're like, how did I get here? This happened to me with the, these challenges. And as I was pondering it, it made me, surprisingly, think of prayer. 
it made me think of prayer because I think it taps into a tension that perhaps a lot of us feel when it comes to prayer is that we all long for and crave a deeply meaningful and rich prayer life, but at times it feels as if we can't live up to what the Bible says that looks like. So for me, I experienced that by it, you know, the Bible says, we read it today, never stop praying. And I go in my head, oh, that's beautiful. I love that idea of never stop praying. But then when it actually comes to my real life, I find it's a little bit harder. And then at times ah, when I miss it or when I feel like, oh, I'm not praying, it feels like I'm not living up to it. it, feels like I'm missing it somehow. And then end up kind of on this treadmill of always trying to chase this like rich prayer life that never seems to come, never seems to be there, seems right out of, out of grass, like slipping through my fingers. I don't know if any of you out have felt this. Um, I think that's maybe what the tension is. So that's where we're going today. My title today, I'm going to speak on the topic of how to pray without ceasing. So that's where we're going today. Let's say another prayer and we'll dive right in. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that you're here with us. Your presence is a promise. You say where there are two or more gathered in your name, you are there. God, so we just acknowledge you. We worship you. We're excited for what you're going to do, what you're going to say. Would you speak today? And uh, would you, God, tell me what to say? And if there's anything I need to not say, would you just, uh, yeah, God, lead me. We pray this all in your name. Amen. So we're going to dive right into the text Today, our text today is very short and sweet. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Never stop praying. Never stop praying. Now, a little background on the text first before we dive straight in. We're going to do a little history lesson. So, book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, it was written to the church in Thessalonica. It's kind of like a larger city in northern Greece uh, in the area. And uh, a lot of scholars, the, the uh, conservative ones, they'll date it to about 20 years, the letter to about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul writes this first letter talking about, mostly about the second coming, about the day of the Lord. And he's writing, man, Jesus will come like a thief in the night. That's where this verse comes from, that idea that Jesus comes like a thief in the night. He's talking about the day of the Lord, that Jesus is, is going to come soon. He will return, and this is what it will be like. But something interesting happens. The, the church in Thessalonica, they're an apocalyptic-minded church, which might sound familiar to us. They're an apocalyptic-minded church. And so they receive this first letter, and a lot of them start to panic. They're like, oh, snap, did Jesus already come? When is he coming? What's the day? What's the hour? They start to stress about it. They're creating all sorts of charts. They're having seminars. Wait, sorry. I'm talking about Greece. They're, they're having, they're, they're, they find themselves enraptured with the idea of the day of the Lord, that Jesus is coming again. And there begins to be concern and almost panic at times. And some scholars have indicated that there may have been a forged letter by Paul that was going, that was running around the circuit where some person had written a letter in Paul's name saying that Jesus had already come. So people were like, they're like, oh no, like, did we miss it? Did the second coming happen, happen in secret? And we missed it. So they're all stressed out, worried. And so Paul has to write a second letter, second Thessalonians, in order to address this. But our text finds ourselves right at the end of the first chapter. But what I glean from all this background information that may seem unimportant is that the church in Thessalonica were a people with apocalyptic vision. They were a church with apocalyptic vision. Now, what do I mean by apocalyptic vision? 
Number one, the word apocalypse. What we're talking about, here's what we're not talking about. We're not talking about like The Last of Us on HBO. We're not talking about Walking Dead. We're not talking about end of the world, apocalypse. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is that word apocalypse is actually a Greek word that simply means revelation. It simply means revelation or revealing or uncovering that something is being unveiled and is being uncovered. And if we are Christians, we believe in the, the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see that what that word really stands for, what it, le- what it leads us to is the revelation of not an idea or some intellectual thing, but actually of a person, Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's what I mean by apocalyptic vision. Said another, another way, they were living their lives with vision that doesn't stop at only their present circumstance, but actually telescopes over to the end and the knowledge that Jesus is king and he's victorious in the end. And isn't that actually uh, familiar? Because we too, as Adventists, have been historically a people with apocalyptic vision. Now for the Adventists in the room, lifelong Adventists, um, if you're not Adventist, please come talk to me afterwards. That would be an awesome conversation. But for the Adventists in the room, for lifelong Adventists, maybe, I don't know how this apocalyptic vision has sat with you uh, growing up in the church or throughout your life. For me, oftentimes growing up, a lot of it was like fear-based and I felt a lot of like fear and worry and concern and uncertainty and shame and am I gonna be ready on the day and what do these beasts mean? And there's a lot of confusion. I'm here to tell you that I'm not going to answer those questions today. But I want to just say I resonate with you. We can talk about those questions, and I would love to invite you, if you do have those questions, man, how do we see Jesus in apocalyptic stuff? I would just like to direct you to Pastor Michael Gibson. He would love to be, he would love to answer all of your questions. (laughs) Just kidding. I would also love to have conversations about that. Um, But yeah, I don't know how that sat with you growing up, this apocalyptic vision that maybe it was just something in the back of your mind that, yeah, well, you know, something that's all confusing. You know, I know it has to do with like beasts and horns and leopards and wings. And you guys seen like on the internet, the, like the biblically accurate angels? Have you guys seen these? I should have put a picture. Have you seen these? They're like terrifying. They're like a sphere with like millions of eyes. And like, it's wild. That, that's all on the side. Um, but I would like to submit to you, if you did grow up with, an, with this, this sense, this feeling, an apocalyptic vision that you heard it spoken about in church and in Bible class, at school, etc. Um, I would like to submit to you three gifts of apocalyptic vision, three gifts that I have seen. Just real short, real brief. Number one, Jesus is actually victorious. That Jesus is actually victorious. We find in Revelation chapter 17 that in the end, evil actually makes war against God and God actually conquers evil. The text tells us the lamb will conquer them for he's the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings and with and those with him are called chosen and faithful. So God actually is victorious in the end. God actually wins in the end of the story, that evil doesn't have the final word. Number two, that pain and death are actually defeated. Pain, sin, and death are actually defeated. Revelation 21, classic verse. You've probably heard if you grew up in church that he'll wipe every tear from the eye, right? The death that shall be no more. There's no more mourning or crying or pain. It speaks to this feeling, the sense that we have, like in the moments when we're experiencing sickness, disease, death of a loved one. Someone we love is in the hospital. Someone we love is struggling. Maybe we're struggling. And we encounter death and pain, grief, sorrow, that actually they don't have the final word. It gives us vision to say, this is not the end. This is not the end. It is not the end until all things have been made right. 
And then finally, that justice will actually be done in the end. And we find this in Revelation 19, the great multitude in heaven declaring salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. And this speaks, I think, to a lot of something that maybe a lot of us have been feeling in recent years, the sense of injustice in the world of racism, sexism, you know, gender, you know, exclusion and oppression. We have so many lists that we could go down as we look in the world and see, man, all these things, this, uh, this injustice taking place in the world. And the confession of those with apocalyptic vision is, man, Jesus will correct injustice in the end. That all those things we look at, like God actually cares about those things more than even we do. And he will make them right in the end. So I believe in apocalyptic vision, but I do think it is a bit of a double-edged sword at times. It ends up being a double-edged sword for us. What do I mean by this? Sometimes when you live with the end in view, it becomes difficult to be present now. Sometimes when you live with the end in view, it becomes difficult to be present now. Uh, By show of hands, uh, how many students in the room are exhausted at this point in the semester? How many of you are, okay, (laughs) Beatrice was ready with that hand. A lot of you are feeling the weight, you're feeling the tiredness, it's starting to seep into your bones. Um, Any non-students in the room, parents, older folk who are just exhausted all the time, 24-7, it never goes away. See, they don't know, they don't know yet that that's what it's like. (laughs) Um, But it's hard sometimes, right, to be present in the moment when the end is in sight, when you can see the end and you're just looking, okay, I just gotta make it to the end, I just gotta make it to the end, I just gotta make it through. And sometimes it becomes difficult to be present in the moment. So Paul writes to them about the day of the Lord, And then in the closing section of this letter, he writes a whole paragraph of encouragements and tucks right in the middle of all these encouragements are three words, pray without ceasing or never stop praying. So if you're like me, you're reading that, you're just like, okay, I like that idea. That's like a beautiful idea. I want to do that. I want to be a person who prays without ceasing. But the question is how? How in the world, what does that mean? How in the world can I do that? First of all, in response, we know what he's not saying. We know he's not saying that you're on your knees 24-7 all the time, constantly praying, constantly verbalizing. You have kind of a mantra going on. Um, Like any of you guys seen, uh, um, what's that Star Wars movie? Uh, uh, Rogue One, where there's the, the the one monk guy and he keeps like throughout the whole movie, he keeps saying like, I'm one with the force and the force is with me. He has this little mantra that he's saying about like the force and stuff like that. Um, Sometimes I think we think praying without ceasing is like that, that we're just like muttering like a thing, like all day long. Or we're like constantly as we go throughout our day, like, okay, God, I'm going to the grocery store. Okay, I'm in the bathroom. Okay, I'm in the shower now. I'm scrubbing my arms. Okay, here I go. I'm eating pasta. It's like, and that's not what Paul's saying. And how do we know that? The answer is that because in chapter one, Paul says the same word. He says, I write unceasingly. I'm writing to you that I unceasingly make mention of you in my prayer. I unceasingly make mention of you in my prayer. He says this to the church in Rome. And we know that Paul doesn't unceasingly make mention of only the Romans in his prayer because we have books where he he writes prayers where he's not making mention of Romans. So because Paul uses the word in that way, we know it's not, okay, praying all the time, 24-7, this constant prayer, absolutely all the time. So what exactly is it? I'd like to submit to you that what Paul is saying 
is not a sort of 24-hour challenge. We have to pray every single moment of every single day, but actually prayer as a default posture and a way of life. That prayer becomes not simply a thing to do on a list, but prayer as a way of life. Now, the word that I've come to use to describe this sort of prayer as a way of life, prayer that takes the whole body, prayer that takes up the whole life, is the word garden. It's the word garden. And I use this word garden simply because we can see all throughout the scriptures this type of prayer and intimacy and connectedness with God happening in four key spots, four key gardens, and I want to go through them now four key moments. And I believe each one has a lesson for us. The first one, in Genesis, when the Savior, I guess the Creator at that point, walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, every single day, we see garden happening. And the lesson that I take from this is the lesson of consistency and rhythm. That there seemed to be a rhythm and a pattern and a consistency that happens between Adam and Eve and their creator, that every single day Jesus would come down into the cool of the evening into the garden and walk with them and be with them and dwell and have presence. Seems to be a rhythm, a regularness to it. Uh, That seems to be the first lesson of praying without ceasing. I don't know what that rhythm looks like for you. For some of us, it means in the morning. For others of us, it means at night but to have a consistent rhythm. And actually, something I've been experimenting with recently that's actually really been a gift to my prayer life is to have special marked days of prayer. Not only special marked days of prayer, but special times of prayer. And this has actually released me from a lot of the, um, I grew up with a lot of maybe like spiritual life legalism per per se. And what I mean by that is the idea that if I don't start my day perfectly with prayer at a perfect, you know, like have a perfect hour, you know, a special and marked hour with God, then man, my day's not really actually blessed by God, that God's not actually in it, that he's not really blessing it or with me or his, his spirit is somehow missing or gone. And I really believe that's a biblical idea. The New Testament affirms the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is with you all the time, no matter what. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is with you. If you're a believer by faith, the Spirit has been given to you as a gift. So we don't turn off and on the Spirit by not praying. This is not a biblical concept. But perhaps the idea of rhythm is in the scriptures, that there's something that happens when I pattern my life in the rhythm of connection with Jesus. And so what happens, one of my good friends, he's another pastor, my good friend Abner, he always says that uh, something happens where if you grew up in maybe with a lot of legalism and you go through a, a space where you disconnect from it and recognize, oh, I'm loved by God no matter what I do, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you do then in your life may look exactly the same as what you did before, but from a completely different motivation. And so the motivation here is not, man, I'm, I, I, I better get up so that God's with me today because if I don't pray, then he's disappeared or he's gone. But rather when I pattern myself in this rhythm of connection, Something happens in me. Something happens in me. It's something that I need. There seems to be something deeply human and necessary and needed that Adam and Eve had, where they had this rhythm every single day. So the first one is rhythm. The second one we find, the second place we see garden happening 
is in Gethsemane. Jesus, in his moment of anguish before the cross, he's crying out to his father. And we see this vision of him being incredibly honest and vulnerable and raw with God, where he's like, God, Father, I, I don't want to do this, but if this is the only way, I, I feel... You, we see him sweating drops of blood because of his honesty. We see this anguish and this deep sorrow. Um, and that's, I think, the lesson we learned from this is the lesson of, excuse me, of honesty, of honesty, that there seems to be this invitation when we're in the space of living in garden, when we're just honest, that honesty comes naturally, that we, that we press into just being completely vulnerable, just saying, God, this is how I'm actu- I actually am. Not who you think that, not who I think that you need me to be, but how I actually feel. I'm feeling afraid. I'm feeling doubts. I'm feeling questions. I'm feeling grief. I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling anxious. I'm struggling with mental health. That there's a there's space of honesty. So that's the second invitation. The third, an invitation into garden that I see is after the resurrection where Mary comes looking for the body of Jesus and she doesn't find him. She's confused and she meets an angel and angel says, he's not here, right? Why are you searching for the living among the dead? And then Jesus turns around, she turns around and she sees a man. And the text says she mistook him for the gardener. She mistook him for the gardener. But then something interesting happens. Jesus says her name. He says, Mary. And it's interesting because she didn't recognize him before because he, sp- he speaks and he says, what are you looking for? And she, she tells him, I'm, I'm looking for my Lord that, you know, they buried him here, but now his body's gone. I don't know where he is. And he doesn't even answer. He just says, Mary. And something shifts in that moment because as soon as he says it, she recognizes and she says, Rabbi, it's you. And what this suggests to me is a high amount of time. A high amount of time. How how does this equate to time? I think that when you've dwelt with a person enough times, there's a certain way that they say your name that no one else really says your name that way. You could tell that it's from them, right? You can tell it's from them. If it's your best friend or your mom or your dad, there's a certain way that maybe your mom or your dad says your name that no one else says your name that way. You hear it in that vocal inflection. So there's a certain element here that suggests that she had spent a lot of time with Jesus. So this suggests to me this third lesson of time that we have to put in time. Now, again, what I'm not saying is there needs to be 24 hour, you know, sing the same song for a whole day sort of challenge, like just endless amounts of time. We're we're just running on this treadmill of time. But over time, there's an intimacy and a closeness that takes place when we press into actually putting in the time. That's something that, as I mentioned before, when I've created like special days of prayer for me, right now it's Thursday, and then I have a special time of prayer on Friday night. When I enter into those times, what's helpful to me is say, okay, 15 minutes and I'm just gonna pray. And that's actually hard. That's like harder than I expect every time, but then at the end, I'm so grateful. So it has to be an element of time. And then finally, we see a final garden at the very end, the middle of the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. We see there's a great multitude under the throne of God, and they're all together, this great multitude of tribes and nations and peoples, and they're all waving palm branches, and they're all declaring, Man, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and the lamb that was slain. Salvation alone belongs to God. <laughs> 
we see this, this, this shift happening that in the end, prayer not only becomes something that we do in between the gardens, but actually becomes the rest of our eternity. That prayer becomes reality forever. Prayer becomes reality, but it doesn't do this only in an individual sense. It does this in a community. And so that's the that's fourth lesson that I take from these gardens is that prayer has to happen in community. Man, I need other people to build me up. I need, when I'm feeling discouraged, I need other people who have faith to speak into my life, to say, hey, I don't, I don't know if you're actually believing the truth about what God says about you. God says that you're loved, that you're beautiful, that you're valuable, that you're excellent, that you're a son, that you're a daughter. I need people in my life to say that. We need to surround ourselves with people like that. That's the fourth lesson that I've learned, man. We need to pray in community. We need to bear each other's burdens. A final story, and then we're done. When I was in California, I lived there before going to seminary. Uh, I used to drive this, this, uh, this highway. And uh, it's this, uh, if you're from Southern California, you know like the Riverside, Loma Linda area, you know which highway I'm talking about. It's this toll road that goes uh, towards Orange County. And uh, I always used to drive this all the time to visit some friends that I had in Orange County. And uh, during my, my divorce, I, I, w- I found myself in a, a space of, of deeply questioning the presence of God in my life. Feeling like, man, God, where are you? You seem to be missing from this story. You seem to be missing. Where are you? And I would go to the old things that I used to do. I would go back to the text and, and, and read the book, but it just, it, it just, you know, it wasn't hitting. Uh, I would read the words and they just felt empty and, and, and powerless and, and meaningless. Like, God, where are you? What are you? How come you're not in this in this story. And then I would go to pray. I would, and for some, some reason, it felt like I was, my, my prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling. I was, it felt like, man, God, are you even there? Am I even talking to anyone at all? Is anything even happening here? And so for a while, I just stopped praying because I'm like, it's not doing anything. Like, why, why would I pray when it's just not doing anything? And maybe some of you have been in a space like that where you've wanted to pray, but things are just so tough that it's like, what? it's just not doing anything. And you've been consistent. You've put in the, in the time and the rhythm right? But it's like, man, God, where are you? You don't seem to be showing up. And I found myself in one of these spaces. Now, California is uh, con- constantly dry. There's almost, you know, it rarely rains. So it's, it's almost always in a season of drought. And so every time I would drive on this, this, this highway, I would come around the corner and it's a little bit of a valley that where like these hills would open up on either side. And there's all this shrubbery and brush. And it was, it was always dead every single time that I would drive this valley. It was dead every time because California is super dry and is in a drought. So it was dead every time. It was like a dry wasteland every time I would drive this valley. It came to one week where I was just, I was just feeling completely abandoned and just like, God, you're just gone. I know that you're real, but you're not real for me. So I guess if you're not going to speak to me, I'm not going to speak to you. I felt a lot of anger and bitterness at the time. And I remember taking the corner of this highway and being shocked to find that it wasn't dead, but alive. And it had been raining for the two weeks prior, which in California, like we were rejoicing. We're like, finally, we're not going to die. And I remember it every single day it was raining. I, I had just been saying, man, God, it's, it's, 
the rain was almost a metaphor for my life. It was just dreary and depressing. But I remember this day was sunny, and as I came around the corner, the valley opened up to life. And it was like the garden of heaven was open in front of me, and I just started to weep because I saw somehow that God had been present the entire time, and it was like he was inviting me and speaking directly into my story to say, I know that it has been dead, but it will be alive. And not only this, but that garden is available any time, in any place, in any space. And even the places that we think are the most dead, that garden is just behind the screen of reality. And God is right there waiting for us to enter And so here's two things on my heart for you. And this is what I, I've been praying about for you all this week and yesterday and even now for you to know. Two things. Number one, that garden is available anywhere for you. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done how long it's been, if you're a lifelong Adventist or not, if you know what a haystack is, if you keep the Sabbath perfectly, like all all, all these things, all these things are good things. But the biblical truth is that garden is always available to you, no matter what, no matter where, no matter how dead that it seems and how dead that it feels, that that portal, so to speak, is always there for you to enter in to the garden. And what you find in that garden is the second thing on my heart for you, is that in the garden, there's only one choice but to submit to the reality and truth of the gardener. And the reality of the truth of the gardener, it just speaks the truth over your life. And the truth over your life is that you are loved beyond measure, that you're a son, that you're a daughter, that nothing you could ever do would ever change that. And that there will come a day where the dead things come alive. And I've learned, man, in the, in the hard moments of life, this is the hardest. This is the hardest times. And maybe some of you are in this space right now. I feel that maybe perhaps that is the case. That in the hard moments of life, when things are really tough, it's hard to actually enter into that space. But I would encourage you, do, don't get callous towards the garden of God. But that that space is actually the space that brings peace, that brings healing. And when you go into that space, what I have found in my life is that God meets me in that space. And he says, man, this may seem like the end, but it's not the end. Man, this may seem like death, but it's death. Death is not final to me. What is death to me? Man, it seems like sickness, but what is sickness to me? This seems like a failed class, but what is a failed class to me? This seems, it seems like it's over, but nothing's over for me. That I am the God of new beginnings, of new creation. You can't stop my resurrection. So if it seems like it's over, if it seems like it's dead, that's not truth. Death is not reality. Death is just the in-between, the gardens. So I'm gonna pray for you. Whatever you're facing, I wanna pray this over you, that God would just give you faith to enter the garden in those moments, in that space, to be encouraged and to receive life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for this amazing group of folk. Oh God, how you're with us in the midst of everything. Oh God, how you're always inviting us to come back to the garden. 
And God, as we strive to do this in a sense of rhythm, as we strive to be honest with you, as we strive to do this, God, consistently over time, and as we do it in community, would you remind us that you are always present to us? We thank you for all these things. And I, God, I just pray that you would fill us with faith. We pray, I pray this all in your name. Amen, amen.